Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm Nick Hayden. And I am Timothy Deal. We are your hosts as we work through the decades of the 20th century. Of film. And this week we're in 1942. With what, Tim? Today's movie is The Magnificent Ambersons. Directed by Orson Welles. Yes. It's a fascinating movie that's just as fascinating for the behind the scenes as it is for the actual movie itself. It's almost impossible to find an essay or article about this that doesn't reference some of the behind the scenes drama. Which we'll get to in a moment. But first, Tim, tell us what we know about the year 1942 in film. Okay. Over there, over there. Well, we are still in the golden age of Hollywood. We are still in the age of talkies. The studio system is still going on. The Hayes Code is now being enforced. So that's the change from last episode. That's the moral code, basically, for yeah, movies. Yeah, the, the self-censorship that the studios use to keep themselves in check and keep the Catholic mobs off their back. <laughs> <laughs> of course, big thing in the history of the U.S. going on right now, we had just entered World War II. So uh, that's changing a lot of the landscape culturally. Yes. Uh, with the, the country is gearing up for entering the war. And, you know, Pearl Harbor had just happened. Um, this would continue to have ripple effects in the film industry for the years to come, obviously. At this point, we haven't had a whole lot of actors. Eventually, uh, some of the most famous actors would wind up getting enlisted themselves, yes. like Jimmy Stewart, Mm -hmm. and a handful of others. Uh, but right now, basically, just there's a few prominent movies with patriotic or pro-war themes, some that had already kind of been in, in pre-production and developments before the, America officially got started. Mm -hmm. Four of the top 10 grossing films of 1942 include this kind of patriotic propaganda kind of stuff. Because we've been watching Britain and the whole war for a couple of years now. Yeah. And actually, that is a great segue for the top grossing movie of the year was actually Mrs. Miniver, which is not a movie I was familiar with before I started doing research on this. But this was a drama about a British housewife in England and how her life is affected by World War II. And this was very... Um Critically acclaimed as well, I believe. Yes, yes. It was the highest grossing film of the year. Also very, even today, it's considered a good artistic propaganda film, essentially. Like I said, top grossing film. It wound up winning several Oscars, including Best Picture. So that's Mrs. Miniver. Another big one that came out this year is Yankee Doodle Dandy, which is a biopic about the American entertainer and songwriter George M. Cohan, who was the songwriter who wrote some patriotic songs like Yankee Doodle Boy, You're a Grand Old Flag, okay. and most poignant for 1942 audiences, Over There, which is a popular song of World War I, became popular during World War II again about sending our troops over there. Interesting. So released nationally in June, it was the third highest grossing film of the year, and it is on several American Film Institute's top 100 lists. So it lasted. And that one had a last, more lasting endurance. I was way more familiar with Yankee Doodle Dandy than I was with Mrs. Minifer. Okay. <laughs> and then, there, like I said, there are a couple other patriotic films that were in the top 10 of the year. Wake Island, which is a war film that took place in the Pacific, and Somewhere I'll Find You, which was a romantic dramedy about war correspondence. Movies were made much quicker back then than nowadays, it seems like. I would say that's probably true. I mean, Mrs. Vindiver had been in the works before U.S. got in World War II. But you said Wake Island had to do with the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, so we're not even a year out from that. Yeah, that's true. Special effects weren't the gargantuan matter that they are nowadays. Yeah, you just filmed it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's, that is very true. 
So those are some of the top grossing films from the year. And I mentioned that uh, Mrs. Miniver won Best Picture. James Cagney won Best Actor for Yankee Doodle Dandy. Okay. My other nominations for this week, the movies that came out for 1942, one of them was Yankee Doodle Dandy, Mm because that's a classic. The other one was Holiday Inn, famous Bing Crosby movie, famous for introducing White Christmas into the world. So that was the introduction to that. Other notable events from Film World in November 26th was the Hollywood premiere of Casablanca. Very good movie. Very good movie. Classic movie, which we won't cover here because we have both already seen that one. Well, and it's 1943. Yeah, technically. That's when its wide release took place. Oh, I gotcha. Oh, I gotcha. Yes. So, yeah. And I should mention, the other top grossing of the year also included like adventures, musicals, and comedies, and a sports biopic. So... It wasn't just war stuff, but notice that a lot of the other stuff that was in the top 10 was mostly escapist stuff. Yeah. Or in the case of the sports biopic, which is a movie about Lou Gehrig, kind of an inspirational kinds of story. Okay. What was not included in the top movies for 1942, at least top grossing, was this movie, The Magnificent Ambersons. No, this movie, uh, well, we'll get to the story here. So what is this movie? Okay, well, this <laughs> this is a movie directed, like we said, by Orson Welles. The cast includes Joseph Cotton, Dolores Costello, Ann Baxter, Tim Holtz, and Agnes Moorhead. Can I just throw in here right now that this is almost the polar opposite of the Marx Brothers, which we watched last week? Yes, this is not a, a silly, as frantic thing. This is a family drama. Um, I mentioned the cast. It's not going to be super familiar to, at least I wasn't very familiar with most of these actors except for Agnes Moorhead. A lot of these people, though, had worked with Orson Welles before. If you're not familiar with Orson Welles, he's most famous for, well, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. Um, which is the first movie he directed. He got his start on Broadway. Oh, uh, really? I did not a, know that. Yes, he as a director on Broadway. I knew him from radio. Yes, and that became the other thing he was majorly known for, especially at the time this was made. The whole War of the Worlds thing mm-hmm. happened in 1938, I believe, okay. because of... He was a huge radio star, and he had been such a prodigy on Broadway. I mean, keep in mind, he, this is a guy who started the Mer- Mercury Theater, a group yes. of actors on Broadway, when he was 22 years old. <laughs> when we talk about the prodigies, like people are drawn toward genius. This is yeah. who Orson Welles was. Yes. He was madly successful on Broadway, madly successful on radio. And so RKO Pictures, the studio is like, well, we want to get him and see if he can do something crazy with us in film. And he made Citizen Kane. Which is still known as one of the greatest films of all time. I Indeed. Think. Now, of course, it had its own share of turmoil, but we'll deal with that a little bit more. So needless to say, at this point, Orson Welles is writing high as the Steve Jobs of his day, yeah. as the um, fill-in-the-blank, hotshot, young. Again, he made Citizen Kane when he was 26. Yeah. So he is on fire at this point. But what is The Magnificent Ambersons? It is based on a Pulitzer Prize-winning 1918 novel. This is a family period drama that takes place around the turn of the century about, quotes, the declining fortunes of a wealthy Midwestern family and the social changes brought by the automobile age. That's a quote from Wikipedia. It's not from the movie itself, but I thought it summed it up pretty nicely. It is, yes. So we'll give you a brief summary. Now, again, this is a podcast for people who have always meant to watch classic movies. So we're not going to go. We In the last few episodes, we've been kind of free and loose about spoilers because it's not the kind of movie you really need to worry about that. Yeah. But this is a this is a denser movie. So, yes, it's, it's quite dense. So we will try to talk about this in a way that even if you have not seen it, you will be intrigued and want to learn more about it. But this movie starts off with a prologue narrated by Orson Welles. The magnificence of the Ambersons began in 1873. Their splendor lasted throughout all the years that saw their Midland town spread and darken into a city. 
It sets the stage showing how wealthy daughter Isabel Amberson rejects the advances of a young man, Eugene Morgan, after a perceived humiliation and instead marries a passionless man she does not love. The only child of this marriage, a son named George, gets spoiled rotten by his mother's affections, causing the local townsfolks to wish the brat would get his comeuppance. The main story starts in the early 20th century at a Christmas ball hosted by the Ambersons. Eugene Morgan, now an automobile manufacturer and recent widower, has returned to town for the first time in several years. Now, George, the brat, if you may remember, he has a keen dislike of Eugene, but is interested in his daughter, Lucy. However, following the death of her husband, Isabel, the mom, and Eugene begin courting anew, though she is reluctant to tell her son, George, the brat, who is aggressively overprotective. George's naive belief in his family's prestige ill serves him as he courts the daughter of a man he hates, tries to keep his mother to himself, and watches as his family's estate crumbles around him. So it's a bit of a downer. Yes. So we'll put it that way. But you Downton Abbey fans would be very into this. Yes, it has, it has a lot of, uh, I guess it echoes, well, Downton Abbey echoes this. Yeah. But Downton Abbey's a little happier by the ending, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's still an ongoing story, and this is, yeah, this is a more dire affair. Yeah. The format is still black and white, of course, with sound. Screen ratio is still the Academy standard. Looks very 4 by 3 ish So mm-hmm. if you're watching on your widescreen TV, you know, it's supposed to have black bars on the sides. Uh, the length is now 88 minutes. <laughs> this is where it gets interesting. The original, well, I should say, Orson Welles' first cut, or rough cut, was estimated to be about 40 minutes longer. That said, it probably would have been trimmed still. Here are some details about what happened with this thing. After Basically, after recording his narration, the same day, Orson Welles traveled down to Brazil to be part of, uh, part of the Roosevelt administration's Good Neighbor Initiative. So basically, he had a rough cut about 130 minutes. Yes. Finished the last of the recording, he leaves. Yeah. And then? And then, during the post-production process, at some point, there's a preview, as, as studios usually do. They'll test run it before an audience. Yes. The first test was disastrous. It didn't help. In that this test run was one part of a double feature, like most things are back then. It's just weird to run test runs a double feature, but I guess everything was released that way. So yeah, so I guess it's what audiences it. came to expect. So yeah. it's like I, I don't want to just go to movie to, to the theater to see one movie. I want to see yeah. two movies. You know, so it's just, already running long for a normal. So it's movie. running. It's running long, and like the other d- part of the double feature was like this much more escapist musical with Dorothy L'Amour, you know, pretty girl of the day. Mm-hmm. And this was on St. Patrick's Day, so some of the audience was probably inebriated yeah. already. It was not the crowd you want to show a serious art drama to. Yeah, it's an indie film, basically. I mean, yeah. not really, but a similar style. Yeah, well, well, art house film in, yeah. in a sense. And so people were laughing when they shouldn't have. And what I've read is some of the comic cards, like 78 or some of them, were like, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. Whereas like the other like 50-some comic cards were all like, this is the best movie I've seen in ages. I'm so sorry you had such a terrible audience for this. Yeah. So the audience was super divided, but of course the studio panicked and was looking at just the negative stuff. Yeah, oh, that never happens. <laughs> there was a second preview audience that tested better, but wasn't enough to dissuade the studio heads. So with Orson Welles' first film, with Citizen Kane, he had had actually a very unusual deal because he was kind of a prodigy. He had had complete control over that. And when William Randolph Hearst had threatened to sue the company over basically what he thought was an unfair portrayal of him, yeah. even, even though the film's not technically about <laughs> William Randolph Hearst, it had enough similarities people could read between the lines. But anyway, when the studio was getting squeamish about it, Orson Welles pretty much threatened to sue if they didn't release it. 
So Orson Welles already had something of a grudge in certain people of the of, at RKO. Yeah. Not only was he this hotshot new guy that came and was trying all these crazy new film techniques, not following the normal systems at all in some ways. Yeah. But he's also trying to throw his weight around. So there are certain people that already had a grudge against him at this point, and this didn't help situations. And and actually, because Orson Welles was critically very successful. It wasn't financially successful at the time, which meant that his contract got renegotiated so that he didn't have final cut say over the Magnificent Ambersons. So this 40-some half an hour gets cut out, and it, it from what you've said, kind of... Um it keeps the story, but narrows it. Yeah. Credit due to the head editor. I think his name is Robert Wise, if I remember right. From all accounts, he recognized that the original version was superior to the version that eventually got released. And he did his best to follow the studio's guidance and maintain as much of Orson Welles' vision as possible. But it did change the focus. Did, did Orson Welles appreciate the cuts? I mean, did he? was, it, was he like, okay, fine? Well, it's interesting. He, he did... So he's he's communicating all this, trying to work around this whole thing from Brazil because he felt like he had an obligation there, at least so he said. There's some historians who wonder if he would just was more taken away with the culture and with the women. <laughs> uh, but in later days, Orson Welles would say he did care, and he certainly did communicate as much as he could through phone, through telegrams, through all this stuff. He did make several suggestions. And I do think, like I said, I do think the film would have been trimmed a little bit before it wouldn't have been 130 minutes, but yeah. still he probably would have only cut like 10 to 20 minutes yeah. out of it, not 40. Yeah. Um, and most crucially, the ending scene uh, was completely reshot, completely redone. And that was the part that Orson Welles was most loath to lose. The very final scene is a completely different final scene than what Wells would have done. And he loved the final scene in the original. In the original. Yes. That's true. He came back later in the year and did eventually see it in New York and was heartbroken about it. Would watch it way later during the 80s when it was on television. And he'd watch it up until like a certain point, we'll say about an hour in. And then he turned it off and said, from here on out, it's their movie. Even though before that, there had been cuts to his own material. The ending was just different enough. And again, we won't get into specifics, but like, it's very interesting. Like the focus is, is very different. Like this movie is very much, you notice in my summary, it's about George, the, about George, the, the young spoiled kid. And after he grew up, but the movie is called the Magnificent Ambersons. And the book is also about the Ambersons as a family, but the movie cut out a lot of stuff about them and some foreshadowing. We could talk more about that later. Now you implied this is not a did not have a good reception. Yes, originally it was not successful upon release. It uh, did not regain its costs. It only earned about one billion dollars at the box office. Critically, the contemporary critics, well, the Wikipedia opinions seem to be mixed. I've seen elsewhere that it was more critically well received. It certainly, at least, uh, was nominated for four Oscars, mm -hmm. but it lost um, them all all of those nominations mostly to Mrs. Miniver. Again, that's the other thing that was going against the movie. We talked about how the United States was gearing up for war. This was not a time when audiences were necessarily looking for a story about how a rich family lost money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, not when families are about to lose their sons to going off the war. Mm -hmm. So, yes, not successful in that way. However, since then, the film community consensus is generally to call this a flawed classic. It has been selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. 
The magazine Sight and Sound has listed it in their lists of the top 10 greatest films as of 1972 and 1982. Wow. In 2012, it was placed at number 81. So um, that's not quite in the top 10 anymore. No, it came down, but still up there in the top 100. It is, for Sight and Sound anyway. Uh, The magazine The Village Voice ranked it at number 25 on its 100 greatest films list in 2000. And in 2015, the BBC did a 100 Greatest American Films list voted on by critics from around the world, and they ranked it at number 11. Wow. So the critics love this thing. Yes, and have for quite a while. Yes. Unfortunately, it would not be, uh, this was also kind of the end of Orson Welles' moment of triumph um, mm-hmm. because of this film. He, and he also never finished the documentary that he went to Brazil to, uh, to work on, okay. which was, lost him a lot of money. So between these two things, if you ever wondered why the director of Citizen Kane never went on to become like another Hitchcock or another Scorsese or anything like that, this film really kind of... It's at least a large chunk of it. A large chunk of it. He once said, they ruined the Magnificent Ambersons and it ruined me. Um, <laughs> or something, that, that yeah. might be a paraphrase. But uh, he certainly went on to make more films. He directed a total of like 13 films over the course of his career, but nothing to match Citizen Kane. Or hmm. And for some critics, this one. There's actually some people I saw who like this one more than Citizen Kane in some ways. Oh, interesting. Um, but we can talk about how we feel about that as we get into the next section. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. I've got this dance with her. With whom? With Isabel, of course. 18 years have passed, but have they? Tell me, if you dance with poor old Fanny too this evening? Twice. Wilbur? My gosh, old times certainly are old starting times. all over again. Not a bit. There aren't any old times, but times are gone. They aren't old, they're dead. There aren't any times, but new time. So we know what the critics feel about it. What do we feel about this? How do we, how do we like it? So we watched this a week ago, and we have some recorded re- instant reactions. Let's hear what we thought. Yeah. Interesting story. I'm not sure I followed all of it. Um, there was a lot of dialogue, and sometimes I kind of wish I had subtitles. But definitely a sobering kind of story. Interesting follow-up to Citizen King, because this felt like another story of how wealth ruined a person. Mm -hmm. Beautiful cinematography, impressive acting. Yeah, I want to mull this one over a little bit more. Nick, what do you got? Yeah, I guess trying to condense everything real quick, it is easily the most literary movie we've watched so far. Yeah. There's a lot of moving pieces and, like, layers of, like, character interactions in the automobile and the changing of the world and all that all wrapped in a very beautifully made setup. I'd say it feels a little bit like a, a a Greek tragedy showing the story of a character's downfall, except that it's kind of uh, someone getting their comeuppance for being a spoiled brat is kind of nice. Like, we want that sort of thing. So it's almost like a, a story before another story. I can't decide what I think of Fanny, whether to feel bad for her or to be driven nuts by her. <laughs> I didn't really know who to root for in this movie. Like, I didn't know what the motivations were, where it was going, like, what so what the point of it all was. And, I mean, I you find that out at the end, obviously. It felt like a, a series of snapshots of life, very well done. Like, you have this, there's a scene where they're all getting ready to leave the house or whatever, and there's three conversations going on all at the same time, all at the same like audio level and you're like whoa where am I supposed to put my attention but the point I think was just there's a snapshot of kind of this realistic life except that I don't know the the whole movie wasn't that realistic I mean maybe it was for the time period it was just very 
is this very rich family. And so, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think more on that. So as you can tell, our initial thoughts were a lot of like, we're just kind of trying to work this thing together because it is a dense film. It definitely is. So there's at least a couple of things that I think still stick with us after mm-hmm. mulling it over. One is... Like, before we jump yeah, into that, yeah. I meant to ask, had you heard at all about this movie before this? You know what? Barely, I think. I think one of those things, like, I had probably heard it name dropped. I knew nothing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know where I originally heard about this, but yeah, this was one I, a name I'd heard kicked around. It does feel like to me it's a key to understanding Orson Welles' career. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad I finally read about this. I think I had waited for a long time to read more about it until I'd actually seen this movie so I could judge for myself. So you, Citizen Kane has the upside of having the whole like quotable ending. Yes. And this one's not as easy to take away. Yeah, I think that's true. Okay, anyway. So, anyways, uh, a couple of things that I think we still really enjoyed about this was. Um, the cinematography is crazy good. Yes, it was fascinating to watch. It's interesting, this movie does not have the same cinematographer, director of photography, that Susan Kane does. Susan Kane, from my memory, has very... Dis- I mean, the cinematography wants to be noticed in that. Like, yes. it's trying to be like, look, I'm doing something different. Yeah, yeah. And this does not. And I, I guess that is one thing, those who like Magnificent Ambersons more than Citizen Kane usually reference that, that Citizen mm-hmm. Kane is trying to be a little bit more flashy yeah. um, with its story. But that, I do find that interesting because it is still very noticeable. At least it was for me. Early on, there were some scenes where like the arrangement of the actors were just so much, so different, so interesting mm-hmm. to look at that sometimes I forgot to be listening to what was going on, <laughs> which is bad because there's a lot to try to keep track of. Yeah, there's movie. a lot going on both visually and audio dialogue wise. Yeah. yeah. So it's definitely one of those where I do feel like you would see more, you'd have different interpretations of things yeah. on, on a rewatch beautiful long shots oh yes so that was one of the other sequences that i didn't really talk about but like that ballroom sequence that we talked about the beginning that was originally going to be longer i think there was like four minutes that was cut out of it wow and wells really regretted a lot of that because i guess one of them it wasn't like one long shot but it was as close to a a long shot as he probably could of basically the characters walking through like one whole floor of that so you can feel like the whole layout and it's a little hard to kind of get the layout this way the way it's currently cut hello lucy hello Hello, Lucy. how do these ducks get to know you so quick oh i've been here a week seems to me you've been pretty busy most of these hello lucy hello most of these ducks, I don't know what my mother would invite them here for anyway. Don't you like them? Well, I used to be president of a club that we had here, and some of them belonged to it. But I don't care much for that sort of thing anymore. I really don't see why my mother invited them. Maybe she didn't want to offend their fathers and mothers. I hardly think that my mother need worry about offending anybody in this old town. But it is fascinating, like the choreography involved and like mm-hmm. people moving in and out of the shot and different setups. And I guess probably a lot of the sound here would have been dubbed after the fact, because I guess in order to accomplish this with lights and stuff, yeah. they actually had to like move walls in and out to move <laughs> wow. lighting setups, you know, just out of view of the camera. And it must have been a mad 
choreography and just mapping wise details wise to make all that happen it just i mean a lot of it's at the house and the house is just a beautiful place all around yeah it's it's amazing setting like sometimes you feel the grandeur like in the the ballroom sequence other times it feels like it's has this haunting presence over the family yeah yeah how he picks the shot or how how the lighting is sometimes it's yeah something that's too big for them almost like Uh and then sometimes it's just this great like the the ball scene is just yeah. Huge. Yeah. And there's a staircase that like has there's like three multi- stories at least. Three stories, yeah. Some people called it the uh, like nervous system of the house. Like you see people like listening to conversations or mm-hmm. yeah. It's a great location. I guess the set was used for like horror movies after this. Okay. <laughs> Cause like you can see that. Yeah. Lots of beautiful stained glass and you can have really cool shadowy effects here. Yeah, that's something that sticks with you. Even I am not as versed at catching cinematography as you are, since you had done editing stuff. But it's yeah. it's easily just like it's very pleasant to watch. I mean, just the, yeah. the choreography, the the framing, all of it. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't consider myself an expert by any means. When I was in film school, I always felt that cinematography was one of my weakest points mm-hmm. in terms of like I can't visualize that myself. Think of how I'm going to plan that yeah. and look that sort of thing. My staging is very, very basic compared to like what he was doing here. But I think that's one why, like I said, Orson Welles is considered a prodigy and like whatever he wound up his hand went to because yeah. he just loved to figure out all the nuts and bolts of whatever storytelling medium he was using. And then to go along with all the cinematography, there's very dense, interesting characterizations and playing off each other. I and mean, you've got the mother who has a spoiled son and then we have Eugene, her old lover, mm-hmm. now widower and her daughter and and then the extra family members and there's just a lot of uh what's the aunt's name? I always forget. Uh Fanny. Fanny. The one that uh, I think Natasha mentioned that it's uh, I think Janelle did. Was it it, Janelle or I think, well anyways, I don't know. Yeah. But they're all playing off each other and they're I mean, while in some ways, especially with this cut, George is the main character, everyone feels like real and necessary and important for making the story what it needs to be. Yeah, I concur. I'm One of the things I feel really got damaged most by the cuts was Fanny's character in some ways. Yeah. I think she was originally going to be one of the main characters. I mean, weirdly enough, she did wind up winning some like film critics awards okay. um, for Best Actress. But I'm very curious about how much she was involved. Like sometimes it's hard to tell sometimes if she is being manipulative mm-hmm. in the way she presents and infer- tells George things and the timing. But the guy says, what in the world is wrong with you? Oh, you're always picking on me, always, ever since you were a little boy. Oh, my god. You wouldn't gosh. treat anybody in the world like this except old Fanny. Old Fanny, you see, it's nobody but old Fanny, so I'll kick her. Nobody will resent it. I'll kick her all I want to. And you're right. I haven't got anything in the world since my brother died. Nobody, nothing. Oh, my god! I never, never in the world would have told you about it or even made the faintest reference to it if I hadn't seen that somebody else had told you or you found out for yourself in some way. Somebody else had told me what? How people are talking about your mother. What did you say? Of course, I understood what you were doing when you started being rude to Eugene. I knew you'd give Lucy up in a minute if it came to a question of your mother's reputation because you said... Look here. Just what do you mean? I only wanted to say that I'm sorry for you, George. That's all. But it's only old Fanny, so whatever she says, pick on her for it. I've seen some speculation that she may have even... Because she has this interest in Eugene herself. Even though she is actually the sister of the man that's Isabel. The boring man that she marries. The boring man that she marries. She's his sister. So there's some speculation, like, wondering if, if she helped orchestrate Isabel... 
marrying her brother so that she could maybe get Eugene for herself. Oh, interesting. And so then a lot of the problems that the whole family has it's rooted in her. is rooted in her. Okay. That's a theory. And it would kind of echo the fact that in the original version, she has the darkest ending in some ways. And she has won the last scenes. Yes. Or, or the part la- of, part yeah, the original last, last scene. Which original. Can, yeah. yeah, which we don't need to get in yeah. here now because... Folks haven't seen this. And I guess I also want to say one thing that's continually stuck with me, too, is not just character and cinematography, but thematically, it's very rich and complicated. Like, there's no easy reading of it, I don't feel like. Yeah. There's multiple good readings. Yeah. But there's not... Yeah, it just it's multi-layered. It's polyphonic. It's about the characters and their relationship to each other, but it's also this other thing which we haven't really talked about a whole lot about the passing away of like the of a genteel age and mm-hmm. going into like modern society, particularly the automobile age. There's yeah. a lot of talk about that because Eugene manufactures automobiles. Yeah, and there's some com- important conversation about the changing of the world and is it important or like are automobiles a bad thing or a good thing? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure George is wrong about automobiles. With all their speed forward, they may be a step backward in civilization. It may be that they won't add to the beauty of the world or the life of men's souls. I'm not sure. But automobiles have come. And almost all outward things are going to be different because of what they bring. I think all those things, yeah, it's a very thoughtful movie. Yeah, a lot of detail here. Okay, so I think it's question time. Yeah, question time. So here's my question for you, Nick. Yes. I mentioned in, in our preliminary thoughts that sometimes it's a, it's a little tricky to follow at first because there's yeah. so much going on. Is that a feature or a bug? Oh, I like that. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think in this case, I'm going to rule it as a good thing because I think it's one of those movies that it forces you to f- intensely focus. Mm-hmm. And maybe not catch everything the first time. And it's dense enough that you can come back to it and be like, oh, I never thought of that. Or I think that's just some of the, what I would call the literariness of it. Mm-hmm. Now that it's, I don't think the hard to follow is because it's badly done or that it's not explained enough. I think most of it's just because the world and the characters are as real as possible mm-hmm. and you're trying to catch up. Now, there might be some of it. I felt like there was a little bit of it because once you know there's something missing, you feel like there's something missing. Yeah. You could sense the incompleteness. You can sense it. So there's probably some of that, but even with that, I think there would have been still, anytime you watch something with lots of interrelated characters, it just gets, it takes me a while to get up to speed. Yeah. I think I agree with you overall. I do wonder, I'm very curious about the ending of it because we felt like, Obviously, we knew the last, the very last scene was different and wrong, but it seemed when we were watching it that a lot of the ending the spiraling downward stuff was very compressed some yeah some of us so we had thought upon first watching it that that was where they had cut stuff out found out after the fact not necessarily but they rearranged the orders of, of it when you said there was some foreshadowing and maybe that would help me yeah i think the foreshadowing that had been cut out would have would have helped that aspect of it now again we haven't seen this footage these scenes that were cut out maybe they just didn't work mm-hmm it's hard to say 100%, but the focus in a lot of the editing was to really tighten the story, but sometimes by cutting out foreshadowing, that causes unintended side effects, yeah. I feel like. Second question for you. Yes. So if you had been given the mandates to make this more audience-friendly and you didn't want to cut anything out, or maybe you did cut stuff out, but you wanted to add something in, would you have added a singer or a comedian? Ooh, I think a singer, 
because I think comedian would have broken the format completely. Okay. But I feel like a singer, you could have snuck into a, an important scene with George and Lucy or something. Okay. And maybe made it work. Or maybe it's like a you pick a, like an old-timey singer that no one likes anymore because we're moving to radio <laughs> or something. I think you can make the singer work. Okay. Now, yeah. do you make it a star like Bing Crosby or someone less known? Harpo. No, um... <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't sing? Yeah, yeah. I guess I picked the wrong one. He just plays the harp. Um, <laughs> that would be an interesting addition to this. Yes. <laughs> they walk in, deliver the ice, <laughs> bring a swordfish. Play a moody harp thing, and then they go back to the family drama. I mean, if you want to get the most bang on your buck for the audience, you bring a well-known person. Me and Orson Welles would probably try not to. Okay. But again, if you're trying to make the studio happy, yeah, go get someone popular. Yeah, if you can afford them, which yeah. maybe at this point you couldn't. But. Yeah. Anyway, so you have questions for me? Yes, I kept going through questions, but I also was like, oh, we don't want to spoil anything. Yeah. So there's multiple strands, themes in this. Mm -hmm. If you had to condense it into one sentence, like what you learned or what someone would learn from this, Mm. a thematic thing. I know there's lots. What would you condense it to one sentence? Prestige ain't all it's cracked up to be. Okay, I like that. Okay. <laughs> that's that's, that's how I would I would condense it. Okay. I mean, I guess I don't know how much we talked about this earlier, but we talked we mentioned that there's this automobile thing. But how I think the whole point with the the family prestige getting torn down is also kind of pointing out that that supposed great idyllic time may not have been as perfect as we think it, it yeah. was. So it's an interesting kind of bittersweet conundrum. Okay. Other one. What medium should we adapt this to? Okay. You have choices. Manga. Or anime. Manga or anime. Yeah. Okay. But have um, you seen, like, they have, like, those manga adap- adaptations of, like, Pride and Prejudice and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because it's a family drama. It's lots of characters. Come on. I mean, it would, both could work. Although, I guess I'm le- then leaning towards manga here. That, that's the more natural, I think. Because this was a novel originally. Yeah. So this is an adaptation of it- itself. So you could do... And manga sometimes does get very wordy. <laughs> yeah. So you, you could have these pages of dialogue in here with some really nice shadowy sequences. Stylized dark. Sort of Stylized stuff. dark, yeah. I mean, I guess it feels more graphic novel than manga, but... Uh, yeah, I gotta do the manga style, though. Yeah, uh, that's I'll, I'll go with... Uh, given between manga and anime, I'll go with manga. But you don't want, like, a nice uh, opening credit scene with <laughs> some sort of... The, all the characters. All the Ambersons. Like, like having cool poses. In front and, of a fancy house. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm not saying it couldn't be done, but... Uh, it, it would. Orson Welles would roll in his grave, I think. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, The Magnificent Ambersons was based on Booth Tarkington's novel. Stanley Cortez was the photographer. So, here's our final verdict. Did we like the movie, Tim? I did. Given the question about whether this is better than Citizen Kane, I'm going to say no, because... It's not a complete. It's not as complete of a package as Citizen mm-hmm. Kane is. It does have those flaws. It comes with, and it comes with too much um, baggage. baggage. Yeah, it does. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's not a. It was a fascinating movie to watch, and I'm certainly glad I did. I'm very glad I watched this one. Now, is this only for select audiences, or should everyone who's a casual classic movie watcher watch this thing? Hmm. Or do we just send Citizen Kane instead? <laughs> well, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, I would, yeah, that, that's a must-see first. Yeah. So that, that takes priority. After that, yeah, I, I would say anyone who's interested in family dramas, yeah, this is well worth watching because I'm sure I hadn't able, been able to find a lot of specific examples of this influence, but I'm sure people who know it, who, yeah. who made things like Downton Abbey and other aristocratical 
kind of period pieces would keep it in mind. Yeah, I agree that I think if you're interested in classical mu- movies, this is a really good one. Yeah, for the time period. Even if you're not a classical movie person, but you're a drama, like family yeah. drama sort of person, absolutely. Yeah, go absolutely. for it. So yeah, yeah I, I would say yeah. Those if you're interested in those two fields, go for it. All right. So we say yes. Watch it. Yes. And then if you like it, you can read up on everything that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Actually, a, a site I would recommend for that because it's just fascinating. Uh, there's a tribute site that's simply called themagnificentambersons.com. Oh, nice. It's a fan tribute site, but he does a great job taking stuff from a couple of scholarly books. If you want to read the original script or some details about what was cut out and why, I would check out that website. It was really good reading this week. Nice. <laughs> I wrote the script and directed it. My name is Orson Welles. This is a Mercury production. All right, so that wraps up 1942, The Magnificent Ambersons. Again, not an emblematic film from the year, but I think we've talked about why it stood out and it has stood out in people's memories. It's lasted a long time. Yep. Uh, so you can follow us at iTunes and Stitcher. Subscribe there. Visit our website, derailedtrainsofthought.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Next time, we'll skip another 10 years to 1952. What are we watching, Tim? We are watching a movie that I have seen, but somehow you have not. I have not. Singing in the Rain. I should have seen it, yeah. This is, uh, I think, probably one of our best-known titles for the season, and I think you'll enjoy it. Well, let's finally watch this. Let's finally watch it. All Next right. time. Adios, everyone. Till the next time, this is Tim. This is Nick. Bye-bye. Bye.